Hello, fellow teachers. This has been Wilcox, and welcome to Teaching with Power. I want to thank you for joining me today. It's always a pleasure to spend some time with you each week in the Scriptures. And my goal is to not only give you insight into the Scriptures, but also to give you effective and edifying ways to teach that insight to others. And that way, this channel can be helpful to both teachers and students of the Scriptures alike. And teachingwithpower.com has links to all the resources that you might want to help you in your teaching. Now, this podcast is actually the audio to my videos that I produce on my YouTube channel, Teaching With Power. So if you hear me referring to visuals and you'd like to see what I'm referring to, I encourage you to check out the video presentation on YouTube. And a small request, if at any time during the video you feel that it's helpful to you, would you do me a favor and hit the like and subscribe buttons below? That helps the channel to grow and makes the video more visible to others. But let's go ahead and dig deep. At the beginning of this year of study, I want to take a moment to teach you a little something about Scripture study. If you were with me last year, I introduced the Book of Mormon with some instruction on what I call digging deep. And if you'd like to hear that instruction, just go ahead and click on the link above and just watch the first six minutes of that video. This year, I want to build a little on that thought. And I do this little object lesson with my students at the beginning of each year. I bring out this little treasure box that I've got, and uh, I tell them that I have something for them inside it that's going to help them at the final judgment. And if they'd be interested in knowing what that was. And, you know, I really build this up and I, I try to get them excited. And I assure them that it isn't metaphorical or symbolic, but that I have an actual gift, an object that I'm going to give to each one of them inside the box. And then with great fanfare, I slowly open the lid to reveal a box full of colored pencils. And I like to get the official church-produced scripture markers. And I pull one of them out and I hold it up like it's a precious artifact. And I say, This item is going to bless you at the final judgment. Because when you get there, the Lord is going to only ask you one question. He'll say, can I see your scriptures? And you'll say, okay, Lord, here they are. Now, if he opens your scriptures and he sees markings all over it, things underlined, cross-referenced, notes in the margins, and they look well-worn and used. Perhaps he'll say, hmm, it's apparent that you've spent a lot of time studying my word. And if you've spent a lot of time studying my word, that probably suggests that you've spent a lot of time living my word. And then he'll turn to the side and point to the pearly gates of heaven and say, come on in, you made it. Just like that. On the other hand, If you hand him your scriptures and he blows the dust off of them and and they look brand new and the gilded pages are still stuck together, he may leaf through them thoughtfully and say, hmm, these look like a really nice set of scriptures. They look almost brand new. I'm afraid it doesn't look like you've spent much time studying my words. And if you haven't spent much time studying my words there's a really good chance that you haven't spent much time living my words. I'm so sorry. 
and he'll reach out, pull the cord, the trap door will open, and whoosh, off you go to purgatory. Now, now this is all done tongue-in-cheek, and, and of course, you've got to ham it up a little bit. I don't really think that that's what the judgment is going to be like. But I do believe that there's a hint of truth in it. I do believe that the way we value and use his words is going to have a bearing on how we're going to be judged. So at this time, I tell my students that I don't want that to happen to them. So I'm just going to give them their very own official church scripture marker and encourage them to use it. Marking your scriptures may be one of the greatest ways that you can deepen your scripture study. I'm sure you've noticed that if you've been studying with me these past few years, that I love marking things in my scriptures. We mark lists and themes and repeated words and significant verses and phrases. I personally don't have some big overall color scheme that is matched throughout my scriptures. You know, where, where everything you learn about Jesus is in yellow or everything about prophets in blue. Uh, that system is great and can work really well, but it's just one way to do it. Personally, I like to take things chapter by chapter, and I use different colors within them to, to highlight different patterns and lists and repeated words and themes. There's really no right or wrong way to do it. Just mark. Your system can be as simple as just taking one color and marking the things that you like. However you do it, I can promise you that if you study with a marking pencil in your hand, you will get more out of it. You'll find that you get more insight and inspiration when you study that way because you are showing the Spirit that you're ready and you're willing to learn. So this year, dig deep and mark your scriptures. It will completely change your relationship to the Word of God. And I'll help to show you some ideas on, on some things that you can mark as we study. Well, now, the Doctrine and Covenants. To introduce my students to this book of modern scripture, I usually like to give them this little true-false activity. It, it piques their interest and, and gets them excited about digging into the Doctrine and Covenants. So here are the questions. And I'm going to go ahead and make this available to you as a handout. Let's go through the questions one by one, though. The Doctrine and Covenants only contains revelations received by Joseph Smith. And that's false. The vast majority of them are, but you'll find revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants directed to John Taylor, Brigham Young, Joseph F. Smith, and then the official declarations were given to Wilfred Woodruff and, and Spencer W. Kimball. Number two, the Doctrine and Covenants was originally called the Book of Latter-day Revelations. And that is also false. The very first version of the Doctrine and Covenants was actually called the Book of Commandments for the Government of the Church of Christ, or the Book of Commandments. And very few editions were, were published because the printing press was destroyed by mobs, if, if you remember that story from church history. And here, sometimes I like to show my students a replica of what the Book of Commandments would have looked like uh, that I picked up in Nauvoo. 
Number three, the Doctrine and Covenants is not in chronological order. And that is true. If you want to see this, you can turn to the pages right before section one, entitled Chronological Order of Contents. And you'll notice that for the most part, they're in order, but there are a few notable exceptions, such as section one, section 99, section 134, section 137, and Official declaration number one actually comes chronologically before section 138. And don't worry about that too much. Uh, Throughout the year, we'll discuss why some of those exceptions were made. Number four, the Doctrine and Covenants has 132 sections and three official declarations. False, the Doctrine and Covenants has 138 sections and two official declarations. Number five, the Doctrine and Covenants contains a section addressed to Emma, the prophet's wife. True, section 25 is addressed to Emma. Number six, the Doctrine and Covenants originally used code names for the general authorities to help protect their identity. Surprisingly, that is true. And the only reason I know this is because while I was on my mission in Brazil, my Portuguese Doutrina e Convenios still had the code names printed in that version. So, for example, Joseph Smith was Gazelam, Ahashda was Nuoke Whitney, and Olaiha was Oliver Cowdery. And these were used mainly in the sections that dealt with the United Order, where some of the leaders were concerned about the legal ramifications of that system. But since that no longer applies, uh, the church eventually decided to pull those out for clarity. And you know what? Just for fun, you do find Joseph Smith's code name used in the Book of Mormon. Check out Alma 3723 if you're interested. Number seven, the Doctrine and Covenants contains individual missionary calls. And that's true. Sections 31 through 33 are, are just some examples of that. Number eight, the Doctrine and Covenants contains a section explaining what happened to Cain. And that's false, at least not to my knowledge. Number nine, the Doctrine and Covenants contains a section about distinguishing good angels from bad ones. And that is true. A very interesting section, section 129. We'll take a look at it later this year, but... The handshake test is a fascinating little bit of revelation that we can talk about. Number 10. Some of the sections of the Doctrine and Covenants were received through the Urim and Thummim. That's true. 3, 7, 11, and 17 were all received through the Urim and Thummim. Number 11. The Doctrine and Covenants is now considered closed canon and we'll never have any new sections added to it. And as far as I understand it, that is false. I don't believe the Doctrine and Covenants has ever been considered closed. The most recent addition took place in 1978 with official declaration number two. And there's no indication that I have ever heard that they can't or won't add to it. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised and would actually love to see the proclamation on the family added someday as 
official declaration number three. You know, who knows? And number 12, the Doctrine and Covenants contains the dedicatory prayer of the Nauvoo Temple. And that's false. Um, it does, however, contain the dedicatory prayer of the Kirtland Temple in section 109. And then our last question, 13. The Doctrine and Covenants contains sections that explain the nature of the Godhead, the origin of man, the reality of Satan, the purpose of mortality, the necessity for obedience, the need for repentance, the workings of the Holy Spirit, the ordinances and performances that pertain to salvation, the destiny of the earth, the future conditions of man after the resurrection and the judgment, the eternity of the marriage relationship, and the eternal nature of the family. And that, of course, is true and is a statement that I pulled right out of the introduction to the Doctrine and Covenants. I mean, just look at that list. There is so much understanding and gospel insight and relevance that the Doctrine and Covenants has to offer and teach us. And so I am genuinely excited to study and teach the Doctrine and Covenants this year with you. It's a unique book of Scripture. We have the Old Testament. We have the New Testament. We have the Book of Mormon, which is another testament of Jesus Christ. But what kind of testament is the Doctrine and Covenants? It's our testament. The testament of the latter-day disciples of Christ. It's not a translation like the other standard works are. And it, it presents us with direct revelation from God to man. Another line that I love from the introduction declares that in the revelations, one hears the tender but firm voice of the Lord Jesus Christ, speaking anew in the dispensation of the fullness of times. And the work that is initiated herein is preparatory to his second coming, in fulfillment of and in concert with the words of all the holy prophets since the world began. Well, I can't wait to study the words of that tender but firm voice with you this year. And one final note before we start digging into section one. My focus this year is going to be much more geared towards the text of the Doctrine and Covenants than church history. Now, I will be covering church history as we go along and try to provide you with some background information in as much as those things help us to understand the sections. But church history itself has so much material that you could cover. There is tons of information out there and stories and resources that, that I'll admit it's a little overwhelming as a teacher to try and tackle it all. Now, now I do know church history and I've taught it for years, but I'm by no means an expert. But the best resources that I know about there, in my opinion, are the Institute Manual called Church History in the Fullness of Times. The new documentary series, History of the Saints, is really incredible. And of course, I've been blown away by the new church publication, Saints, Volumes 1 and 2. They are so good. And there are, there are stories in there and details that, that were completely new to me. And I've taught church history for some time now. So those seem to be my go-to resources. But this year... My focus, my spotlight, 
is going to rest squarely on the revelations themselves. And it's going to be where I'll spend the majority of our time. So without any further ado, let's move on to section one. As an icebreaker for section one, I love relating this little story told by Marion G. Romney, former member of the First Presidency. And the story goes like this. Uh, President Romney felt like his wife, Ida, was losing her hearing. He was sure of it. So he tried to convince her to go to get a hearing checkup and, and maybe even a hearing aid. But she couldn't be persuaded. She didn't think she had a problem. So he decided to go to the doctor himself and ask for some advice. So here's the rest of the story in President Romney's words. He asked me how bad it was, and I said I didn't know. He told me to go home and find out. The doctor instructed me to go into a far room and speak to her. Then I should move nearer and nearer until she did hear. So he decided to go home and try that out. Well, following the doctor's instructions, I spoke to her from the bedroom while she was in the kitchen. No answer. I moved nearer and spoke again. No answer. So I went right up to the door of the kitchen and said, Ida, can you hear me? She responded, What is it, Marion? I've answered you three times. And uh, you know, I do love that story. Uh, who was it that had the real hearing problem then? Well, he did, not her. Well, today we're going to take a look at a group of people with a hearing problem. Some individuals who were going deaf and, and didn't even realize it. Now remember, it's important to note, as I stated earlier, that the Doctrine and Covenants is not necessarily in chronological order. Section 1 is not the first revelation given in the Restoration. In November of 1831, Joseph had received more than 60 revelations at that point, and he felt really strongly that the church members needed to have access to those revelations. So the decision was made to publish them in a printed work called The Book of Commandments for the Government of the Church of Christ. Well, before they published them, Joseph felt like the revelations needed an introduction or a preface to the book. You know that many authors will often have a colleague or a notable individual write a preface or a foreword to their book. Well, guess who Joseph got to do the preface to the Doctrine and Covenants? The Lord himself. The Doctrine and Covenants is the only book I know of that has a preface written by a member of the Godhead. So while Doctrine and Covenants 1 isn't the first revelation of the Restoration, it's the revelation that God wanted us to read first. And what is the first word he wanted us to read? Take a look. It's hearken. In all caps, no less. God wants us to listen. And what does he want us to listen to? To the voice of him who dwells on high. He wants us to listen to his voice. Now, considering what we know about the great apostasy and how the people of the Christian world viewed revelation and scripture, why do you think hearken is a significant first word? And I think it's significant because 
it immediately establishes the truth that God speaks to man. That doctrine is restored in the first word. God has a voice. For hundreds of years, that voice had been stifled and silenced by the apostasy. Much of the Christian world had abandoned the idea that God could still speak to man, or that he cared enough to speak to man. In a sense, they had hit the mute button. They'd gone deaf to that voice, although they didn't think that they had a hearing problem, like President Romney. So God's opening refrain in modern revelation then is hearken, listen to me. I can speak. I have something to say to you. And with that as an introduction, I'd like to give you a quick marking challenge. I want you to read carefully through Doctrine and Covenants 1, verses 1 through 14, and mark every word or phrase that suggests either speaking or listening. And let's see how many you can find. And while you're at it, a second thing to look for too. Who is he speaking to? Who is the voice addressing? And if you did that, uh, you probably noticed that there's a lot. In verse 1, hearken, voice, and then he says hearken again, and listen together. In verse 2, voice of the Lord, neither ear that shall not hear. In 3, their iniquities shall be spoken upon the housetops. 4. The voice of warning. Mouths of my disciples. Verse 11. Voice of the Lord. All that will hear may hear. And then verse 14. They who will not hear the voice of the Lord, neither the voice of his servants, neither give heed to the words of the prophets. So can, can you see that theme scattered throughout those verses? It's very obvious that the Lord wants us to listen to him. Now, my second question. Did you notice who he's speaking to? Well, initially, he says, Hearken, O ye people of my church, in verse 1. But he doesn't stop there. There's another hearken in verse 1. Another equally important audience. Hearken, ye people from afar and that are upon the islands of the sea. Listen together. Verse 2, For verily the voice of the Lord is unto all men, and there is none to escape it. In verse 4, The voice of warning shall be unto all people. In verse 6, This book of commandments which I have given unto them, his servants, to publish unto you, O inhabitants of the earth. Therefore, the Doctrine and Covenants isn't just for members of the church. It's for the world. It's for all people. Maybe we should keep that in mind when we do missionary work. Perhaps we should be using the Doctrine and Covenants just as much as we do the Book of Mormon. It's addressed to all inhabitants of the world. So, there are a few things that we've established here. God has a voice, and that voice is to all people. Now, the next question, what does the voice have to say to us? And did you catch that as you read? 
you may have noticed in verse 4 that it's a voice of warning. That voice has got a warning for us. And remember that warnings are given for our benefit, to protect us from possible or coming danger. They're given out of a sense of concern for the people that they're directed at. And that's important to keep in mind here, especially when you read some of the harsher language regarding God's wrath or anger. So we say to our children, don't touch that stove. It's hot. Uh, don't swim in that water. There's sharks. Uh, don't go near the edge. You might fall. God has a very, very specific warning for us here. And he's very intent on making sure that we know he's serious. That warning is most explicit in verse 12. Prepare ye, prepare ye for that which is to come. For the Lord is nigh. The message is one of preparation for the coming of the Lord. His coming is nigh. The rest of the Doctrine and Covenants is going to help us to prepare for the second coming. An interesting side note. At the same time that God gave Joseph this preface, he also provided him with an appendix for the Doctrine and Covenants. Something to go at the end. And that would now be section 133. What is the major topic of section 133? Shouldn't be a surprise. It's the second coming. And these two sections are to serve as bookends. So if he begins his book with a warning and a call for preparation and ends it with a description of what's going to happen at his coming, what would you expect to find in between? Instructions on how to prepare for his coming. And everything we study this year is going to help you and I to be prepared for Christ's return. And that's important, because if we're not prepared, we will experience sorrow. Our iniquities will be spoken upon the housetops. God's wrath will be poured out, his anger kindled. And in the end, I might find myself cut off from among his people. God doesn't want that for us. He doesn't want that experience for any of his beloved children. So verse 17, Wherefore, knowing the calamity which should come upon the inhabitants of the earth, he's going to do something. And I want you to discover this next truth on your own. I'm going to mark some words and phrases for you, and I want you to tell me what you think the message is. We've already established that he wants us to hearken to his voice. But where do we hear that voice? There's no loudspeaker from heaven blaring, is there? God himself doesn't come on television or the radio to speak to us, does he? So how is he going to make sure that the inhabitants of the earth are able to hearken to his voice? Verse 4, And the voice of warning shall be unto all people by the mouths of my disciples, whom I have chosen in these last days. Verse 6, Behold, this is mine authority and the authority of my servants and my preface unto the book of my commandments, which I have given them to publish unto you, O inhabitants of the earth. Verse 14, And the arm of the Lord shall be revealed, and the day cometh that they who will not hear the voice of the Lord, neither the voice of his servants, neither give heed to the words of the prophets and apostles, shall be cut off, from among the people. Then 
finishing off verse 17 and continuing, Wherefore I, the Lord, knowing the calamity which should come upon the inhabitants of the earth, called upon my servant Joseph Smith, Jr., and spake unto him from heaven, and gave him commandments, and also gave commandments to others, that they should proclaim these things unto the world, and all this that it might be fulfilled, which was written by the prophets. The weak things of the world shall come forth and break down the mighty and strong ones, that man should not counsel his fellow man, neither trust in the arm of the flesh. What is the truth that's taught here? God speaks through the mouths of his servants. Now, he also speaks to man through the Spirit. And the following initial sections of the Doctrine and Covenants have a lot to say about that. Personal revelation is going to play a big part in divine communication. But the still small voice isn't always easy for people to hear, or at least recognize. Sometimes the noise of the world is so deafening that the average person is going to struggle to recognize the voice of the Spirit. So God, in his infinite wisdom and mercy, has provided us with a louder voice, an audible voice, an unmistakable voice that any person can hear with their mortal ears. The voice of the prophets, the voice of God's servants. Isn't that wonderful that he does that for us? Personal revelation is a bit more of an advanced spiritual skill. But listening to the prophets will help prepare us to hear that more subtle voice because we'll begin to sense the familiarity in it. But we can actually hear the voice of the servants of God unless we choose to go deaf to them or stop our ears. And that's why here I might skip ahead to verse 38 where the Lord teaches this truth a bit more directly. What I, the Lord, have spoken, I have spoken, and I excuse not myself. And though the heavens and the earth pass away, my word shall not pass away, but shall all be fulfilled, whether by mine own voice or by the voice of my servants. It is the same. Their voice is my voice. So listen to them. And in listening to them, you'll be listening to me. And at that point in the lesson, I might pause and ask the following question. When have you sensed the voice of God speaking through the voice of his servants? And you know, God has given us hearing aids in the last days. I know that I hear the voice of the Lord every time I study the scriptures. The sound of it reverberates from every page. I hear it in Moses' voice, and Peter's, and Paul's, and Nephi's, and Moroni's, and Joseph Smith's. I hear the voice of the Lord every time we have general conference. I hear the Lord's voice in the conviction of Elder Holland's voice, in the logical soundness of President Oak's voice, in the compassionate tenderness of President Eyring's voice, in the directness of Elder Ballard's voice, and in the voices of all the apostles with their unique personalities. And of course, I hear the voice of the Lord in our current prophet, President Russell M. Nelson. 
the certainty and conviction and love in his voice bears the divine tone and inflection of God. I've often asked my students how they think general conference would be different if they announced that Jesus was going to be the final speaker. Would more people tune in? Would we pay closer attention? Would we get more excited? Well, according to verse 38, Jesus does speak at every general conference at least 15 times. So instead of tuning them out or pushing the mute button or stopping our ears, we can hearken to the voice of warning, to the voice of the Lord through his servants. And if we will do that, then we will be prepared when Christ comes again. That is the message that I would want to emphasize if I were teaching this section. Still, there are some other insights that I might point out if I had some extra time. Since this section emphasizes hearing the word of the Lord through the mouths of his servants, he has some additional truth to teach us about those servants of his. And I call these the that's and the inasmuches that are found in verses 19 through 28. So first, the that's. Starting in verse 19 and ending in verse 23, go through and mark all the that's and ask yourself why each is significant. God called his prophets and servants so that what? Verse 19, that man should not counsel his fellow man, neither trust in the arm of the flesh. God wants us to have someone that we can rely on to learn truth. Man isn't always a reliable source. We oftentimes get it wrong. We need heavenly counsel in these calamitous times. And we need to trust in a divine arm, not a fleshy one. Verse 20, that every man might speak in the name of God the Lord, even the Savior of the world. And I believe that means that his servants can speak with authority from God. Maybe not Every man on earth, but every man that puts their trust in God and his prophets may have the opportunity to speak in the name of God with the authority of his priesthood. Verse 21, that faith might increase. And I know that my faith is increased every time I hear the prophets or I study the scriptures. If someone were to ask me, how do I get a stronger testimony? I would respond with, Spend more time listening to the prophets, both living and in Scripture, and your faith is certain to increase. Verse 22, that mine everlasting covenant might be fulfilled. Well, this is the doctrine and covenants, after all. A fullness of understanding of many of the Lord's covenants are going to be restored in this book. The covenant of baptism, the sacramental covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant of eternal marriage, and more. The revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants make it possible for those covenants to be fulfilled once again. Verse 23, that the fullness of my gospel might be proclaimed. Before Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants, the world did contain a great measure of Christ's gospel. Mankind did have access to a lot of truth. 
But the calling of living prophets, once again, made it possible for the fullness to be proclaimed. And that's what we want, right? We don't want partial truth or incomplete truth. We want the fullness of the truth. That fullness was made possible by the latter-day prophets of God. Now the inasmuches, and this is such a critical truth for us to recognize about God's servants right here from the very beginning of our study, especially at a time when church history is under a lot of scrutiny these days and early church leaders are being criticized or dismissed. Look at the words that are used to describe the prophets. There's something God wants us to understand about them. So find in Mark the inasmuches. Behold, I am God and have spoken it. These commandments are of me and were given unto my servants in their weakness after the manner of their language that they might come to understanding. And inasmuch as they erred, it might be made known. And inasmuch as they sought wisdom, they might be instructed. And inasmuch as they sinned, they might be chastened, that they might repent. And inasmuch as they were humble, they might be made strong and blessed from on high and receive knowledge from time to time. I see two different sets of words here. The first set of words I don't think we often associate with prophets. Weakness, erred, sought wisdom because they didn't have it all on their own. Sinned, chastened, repent, humble. Hmm. You mean to tell me, God, that your called servants might have weaknesses? That they might err? That they might need wisdom? That they might even sin and need to be chastened and repent? The critics of early church leaders don't seem to want to grant them that humanity. But here, God spells it out for us right from the get-go. My prophets are going to have weaknesses and errors and even sins, and my church members as well. And there are plenty of examples of this as you study the lives of Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, Oliver Cowdery, Martin Harris, and others. But does that mean that they weren't inspired or called? If we're going to be fair, we have to consider the other set of words. Yes, they will have weaknesses and errors and sins, but they will come to understanding. They will have things made known unto them. They will be instructed. They will be made strong and receive knowledge from time to time. Can we live in a world where both of these series of words can coexist? All of those things apply beautifully to our church leaders as well. They brought the world understanding and instruction and knowledge and strength. Just look at what God was able to accomplish with such imperfect people. It's unwise and unfair to emphasize one set of words at the expense of the other. Some might point out triumphantly when they read something about Joseph Smith or Brigham Young and say, look, they were weak, they erred, they sinned, and then completely dismiss their divine calling. On the other hand, it's not wise to only point out the good and not acknowledge the weakness. So what should we do when we recognize that weakness and error and maybe even sin? 
we do what we're asked to do whenever we see those things in anybody. We do what we hope people will do for us when they see our weaknesses and errors and sins. We forgive. We leave the judgment to God and allow people to be mortal, to be human. I think that's really good advice for all of us as we begin a deep study of church history and those involved in it. We have to remember that most of these early church leaders were converts themselves. They were put into these high positions of authority after only being members of the church for a very short time. In some cases, months. It's a little unfair to compare them with the prophets and apostles of today, who before they're called have decades of experience in leadership and study and testimony. Although even they can't be expected to be perfect either. Joseph Smith did not receive everything, every bit of knowledge and all truth right at the first vision. It was a process over years and years of time. Revelation and knowledge came line upon line and precept upon precept. And I would say that that process of of learning and revelation has continued right up until today. And with that in mind, one final thought. Verse 30. These servants that he calls, they have a work to do. They're going to accomplish something great in latter days. What is it? And also those to whom these commandments were given might have power to lay the foundation of this church and to bring it forth out of obscurity and out of darkness, the only true and living church upon the face of the whole earth, with which I, the Lord, am well pleased, speaking unto the church collectively and not individually. These servants will establish the Lord's church in its fullness once again upon the earth. And what kind of a church is it? Two key adjectives here. It is true and living. And I think we tend to focus on the first half of that statement more than we do the second. In testimony meetings, we hear it all the time. We hear people say that they know this church is true. But then we put a period after that word. Perhaps we need a punctuation correction in our testimonies. We need a comma in there or no punctuation. It's true and living. True suggests that it's founded on eternal principles, that it's reliable and firm. But it's also living. A living thing grows and adapts and changes and matures. It not only grows in number and size, but it grows in revelation and understanding. Like a tree. New limbs will branch out while others will need to be pruned or cut off. We don't live the united order anymore. Our application of the word of wisdom has matured since it was first given. Our understanding of sealing has grown. Our policy on race and the priesthood has been pruned. Sometimes people get distressed over changes in the church. Policy changes. Changes with the law of polygamy, changes to the temple endowment, three-hour church to two-hour church. But we have to remember that we grow. Critics demand a non-growing church. They think that change suggests that the past was wrong. That's not necessarily the case. The church matures 
or the world changes and we need to adapt. Sometimes those changes are deep. Others are maybe more a matter of leadership preference or are more mechanical in nature. For example, calling it ministering instead of home teaching really isn't too huge of a change. Maybe more of an adjustment. Perhaps a change in terms adds freshness and vitality to the program. But in any case, we should remember that we are a true and living church. That's going to be another crucial principle to understand as we study the Restoration and as you examine church history this year. A few question suggestions. When have you experienced one of the that's in your life? How do the inasmuches help you in your study of church history? And then, how do you know that the church is true? And equally important, how do you know that the church is living? Well, I'd like to conclude today's video with one final verse from section 1 and an invitation. Verse 37. Search these commandments. Remember, the Doctrine and Covenants was originally called the Book of Commandments. For they are true and faithful. And the prophecies and promises which are in them shall all be fulfilled. So, my friends, please don't read the Doctrine and Covenants this year. We're not meant to read the Scriptures. Don't peruse. Don't skim. Don't just plow through it to get it done. You don't engage with them in the same way that you do a magazine or a novel or a newspaper. Search them like a prospector searches for gold, like a detective searches for clues, like a shepherd searches for his lost sheep. Search for truth this year, for relevance, for insight, for application. And if you do this, I can assure you that you will find those things in abundance within the pages of the Doctrine and Covenants. And that's all I have for you this week. I hope you enjoyed our time together and that it's helped you. If it did, I'd love it if you shared it with somebody else that you feel it could help. Hit the like and subscribe buttons. Thank you for watching. And as always, get out there and teach with power.